Welcome to Alex Anderson's Quilt Connection, dedicated to educate, inspire, and grow today's quilting community. Hi, welcome to episode 18. I'm Alex Anderson. Periodically, I have the honor and opportunity to talk to school kids. And I love this because no matter what their age or demographic, I always get them interested in quilting. Oh, we have a lot of fun. I tell silly stories and, you know, we just goof off. But my bottom line goal is to hopefully intrigue some of them into the sport of quilting. Well, recently my daughter called, as she doesn't live far from me, and she's a teacher's aide and substitute in a wonderful little elementary school. And she asked if I'd be willing to come and talk to the kids about quilting, and it would be specifically a four-fifth, a four-five split. Of course, I'll be there in a second. I mean, not only would I want to hang out with my daughter and see her in action, but also, hey, it's another opportunity to get to kids. But then she threw in the monkey wrench. She said, it has to be about pioneer quilting. Yikes. This is not my strong suit. <laughs> but, hey, I said, of course, and I figured I could get the information that I needed. So where was I going to learn about this? Okay, I couldn't find a lot on the internet. And then all of a sudden, I remembered Fancy Dry Goods owned by Lindy Miller, in um, Columbia State Park, which is just outside of Sonora, California. I called Lindy and I said, Lindy, uh, could I talk to you about Pioneer Quilting? And she said, well, absolutely. And I went, wait a minute, why don't I go visit Lindy and bring an episode to you? Let's check it out. Lindy, thank you so much for opening the doors of your shop early today in Columbia, although I can hear school kids outside. <laughs> yes, that's what happens around here these days. So what is the history of the dry goods store at Columbia State Park? Well, this dry goods store was actually first built and opened in 1855 by Philip Schwartz. The town of Columbia was discovered in about 1850 by a party of gold miners, and the town really took off in a, in a very quick way because there was so much gold found here. Um, this place has never been a ghost town. There's always been people living here. The heydays were the 1850s and 60s. It went into a bit of a decline, became quite the little bohemian art, art colony mm -hmm. in the 18, excuse me, the 1930s. And a, a little artist lady living here felt that Columbia needed to be preserved. So she brought it to the attention of state, state legislators. And guess what? They decided Columbia needed to be preserved. In 1945, it became a state park, just in time for the celebration of the gold rush 100 years. Well, I discovered this store just a couple of years ago. I've heard about it, but you have got incredible fabric here and every time I come it gets better and better. <laughs> oh thank you. We try really hard to have just the same kind of historic reproductions that Mr. Schwartz would have had in the 1850s. And even my mom who's not a quilter came here and spent a chunk of change and wanted to say hi and thank you. <laughs> oh thank you. We had so much fun when you guys were here that day. Yes we did. <laughs> now who were the pioneers that came here and settled and and what was their relationship with quilting? Tell me a little bit of history of that. 
Well, we always think of pioneers as people who were living on the frontier of the country at that time, which was around Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana. That was considered the West. And there was a lot of people that felt they were getting crowded in the states, and they wanted to move out further west. So in the 1840s, they started heading for the Oregon Territory. Um, they were looking for a better life. Some of them were farmers, and they were already used to hard work and um, wanting space around them. Uh, some of them were just regular people who just felt like the cities were getting too crowded. And so they headed out here. And then, of course, the gold discovery brought lots of people really mm -hmm. fast to California. And what was the... Um, oh, here we have some clientele. <laughs> They'll have to come back. Those are kids wanting oh, to have a peek. Oh, it's wonderful. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, what were the role of quilts and quilting as the people were moving westward? Well, quilts had been being made in the United States uh, for quite a while already, and they were definitely bed coverings and comforting warm things. Um, the pioneers were using quilts um, as a symbol of their home life that they were going to leave behind. And a lot of times their families and friends would get together and make blocks and sign them and put them together in a quilt so that they could take this with them on the trail and they would have something warm and comfortable and beautiful to remind them of the home that they left behind, but to also give them comfort in this new place they were going to, which they didn't know anything about it. They were making quilts so they could show off all their creativity. They were uh, very skilled needle people. And they would use them in the wagons along the way. Um, sometimes they would pad the wagon bed so that it would be softer to sleep in. Um, sometimes they would uh, wrap up their dishes or maybe put a folded quilt on that wagon seat, which probably got kind of hard after a while. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Bumping along. <laughs> so even then, quilts were multitasking. Absolutely. Functional and beautiful, doing lots of different things. And then can you imagine when you got to your little rough cabin or tent out here in the West, and you could open up a quilt and just wrap yourself up in it and say, wow, this is from home. This is beautiful. People made this for me, and I don't feel so sad and lonely. I'm feeling optimistic now. Well, I think one of the things that's really cool are a lot of the patterns that I love to work with probably were even named and made during that time period, right? Oh, absolutely. They were making peace blocks uh, starting about the 1820s and 30s, and some of the names that they came up with would be um, designs that looked like things around them, such as flying geese or stars were always popular, mm -hmm. the rising sun and the mariner's compass. And even, I thought, nine patches and four patches, as simple and organized as they are, might have looked like fields of crops in their farmlands before they left. Um, and, of course, the log cabin, the ever-popular log cabin block. And what is the story behind that block, in case somebody doesn't know who's listening? Well, I think that they started that in about the 1860s, when uh, cabins were really being built everywhere. And the center of the block is often red, which reflects the hearth Mm -hmm. home and the warmth from the farm and then you lay blocks you lay um excuse me logs mm -hmm. around and around and around that's how you build your cabin and that's how you build your log cabin block too now when people first came to america on the east coast i assume they came with quilts also Oh, absolutely, um, because they were coming from England and quilting had been going on there in a different form. They had whole cloth quilts, mm -hmm. you know, whole pieces of beautiful chintzes and gorgeous things that had been coming to that country from India, which is where some of the first cotton production actually started. The finest goods were made there, and then they were printing them there, and uh, when they first exported them from India to 
uh, England, boy, people thought they were just beautiful and very, um, actually not too expensive. So, Well, at what point do you think cloth was, or do you know, was cloth produced in the United States or was it imported for quite a while? Oh, yes. The colonists came and brought all kinds of things with them and they kept receiving imported goods uh, from England. First, there were um, cottons coming from India to England, and then they were printing on them. And that technology began in England in the 1700s. Um, printing began in the United States on cloth that they actually imported, and the printing started here in about the 1770s. Mm-hmm. So right after about the time we became a country, right after about the Revolutionary War. Um, and then uh, it was mostly done by hand, but pretty soon they were building mills and they had mechanization and they had machinery, and so they could produce uh, printed cloth a lot faster, and then de- they decided that England was giving them kind of a hard time. <laughs> so they wanted to actually make the cloth themselves here faster, too, and that all started in about 1810. So, Well, when you're looking for fabric for your store, and I have to tell you, I'm just... I guess I could say, look at my chops as we're sitting here interviewing <laughs> some pretty things. Oh, man. Are there specific colors that are just really, that really say, you know, 1850, 1875? Oh, definitely. Two really well-known ones, indigo blue, mm-hmm. because indigo is a plant and it's been around and used in printing for a really long time. And we have some prints here that were actually copies of French prints, so we know they were being used in Europe extensively. And from indigo, you can get all kinds of wonderful shades of blue from really good, rich darks up to some gorgeous sky blue colors. It all depends on the little secret treatments you do to fabric before you put it in an indigo bath. The other one that's really, really popular is madder. And madder comes from a plant also. It's a root. And once you've taken that root and crushed it all up and distilled it to a beautiful red dye bath, if you treat your fabrics with different little chemicals called mordants, you can dip one piece of fabric into a heavily mordanted fabric dye bath and you can get colors from reds and oranges to purple and brown and black all from one dye bath so when we see our reds our reds are warm and reddish orangey kind mm-hmm. of brick colors um, but we can also get some really incredible purples and some wonderful wonderful turkey reds which i think people have heard of Oh, absolutely. And before I came here, I don't know. I mean, I liked the fabric with the look from that error, but now I'm a um, hardcore <laughs> for this. Mm-hmm. Now, when the families were making their way across, you know, in their wagons and all this, were they quilting at that point? Well, we think that most people made their quilts and brought them with them. But I do have two stories about some people that were actually cutting out the pieces of a quilt they wanted to make uh, along the way. Maybe they thought they'd have time. <laughs> yeah, right. In all their spare time. <laughs> sure. You know, they didn't know how hard that trail was going to be. Man. But one lady's name was uh, Mary Margaret Heslep, and she and her family came out to California from Iowa, and they actually cut out all their pieces, and they worked on their quilt as they came out here, and they would write things on them, like the names of the families or people that were in the wagon train, and they would write little notes about like, oh, here we were at such and such a place on such and such a day, including they wrote when they arrived right here in Columbia in 1859. Another really charming story of a girl who was making a quilt 
had brought along a few cut pieces with her, and she decided she wanted to try sewing while she was walking. If you can imagine, walking across the plains must have been a little boring. Oh, yeah. But she found a copper kettle that had been thrown out from somebody else's wagon, and she picked up the kettle, and she put her pieces in the kettle, and then she could pull them out while she was walking and sew. And I just learned recently, in getting ready for our discussion today, really, they walked unless there was something wrong, correct? They did walk a lot more than they rode in the wagons because it was such a bumpy ride. But they walked a lot, and they wanted to spare the weight of the wagon load on mm-hmm. the animals that had to pull it. Um, and it just seemed like a good idea. They did wear out a lot of shoes, of course, doing that. <laughs> right. But everyone walked from time to time, from the littlest ones up to the grandmothers. And was this primarily considered women's sport, would you say, quilting? Well, mostly it is, but I do happen to know that when they would get together for quilting bees, they'd get those husbands involved with certain parts of it. And and occasionally a man would actually be involved with a quilt, and I did see a signature by a fellow who had pieced his own quilt in about the 1890s, after all the pioneers were crossing the country from the 1840s all the way through the 1890s, and there were different technologies that came about, so lots of different family members could get involved. You probably heard about quilting bees. Well, out on the prairie, that's where the whole family would get together with other neighbors. And the men would be doing all sorts of preparation, like pulling down the quilt frames and maybe even helping mark the quilts for the quilt patterns. And then all the ladies would sit and start sewing. And they would get the kids to help them thread all the needles and pick up scraps and maybe bring them lunch. (laughs) And speaking of kids, they're chomping at the bit to come in here. How do the kids react when they come in here on their field trips? Most people are very surprised, and pleasantly so, to see the beautiful colors in the fabrics that were from that day because they think they were dull. The kids look at them. They want to touch them. Then they think about sewing. We always ask them how many know how to sew nowadays Mm -hmm. and tell them how often kids were involved in actually sewing. Most of the time, they come in here and accidentally learn something before they leave. And that is just wonderful. I can't imagine them not. I'm looking at the clothing. Just you have everything here. I do feel like I've stepped back in time, what, 150 years. Right. Well, thank you. We're doing our job, if that's how you feel. <laughs> exactly. And Lindy, again, the name of your store is Fancy Dry Goods in Columbia. Right. And Columbia is, what, about five miles from Sonora North? That's correct, on the old Highway 49. And how many days a week are you open? Well, right now we're open seven days a week, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And, yes, we do get groups of school kids here from <laughs> yes, field trips. Yes. <laughs> I thought Saturdays were crazy here. It's just so much fun. And I just want to thank you so much for actually closing your doors for a few minutes because um, – I know these people are waiting to come in here. Well, it's my pleasure to sit and have a chance to visit with you. I have lots more to tell, so tell your listeners to come on up anytime. Absolutely, and I'm going to put a link to your website. Oh, great. And um, this is just so much fun. It's a great place to come. Well, it's You can get your whole family here because of the entire Columbia experience. Exactly. But you can ditch them at the candy store or the (laughs) toy store, and that's where your husband works, right? Yes, my husband has the toy store, and he likes to talk about the mining because he's building with wood over there, and he knows a lot about mining techniques. And then come on over to Lindy's (laughs) store and shop till you drop. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Alex. Thank you, too. Yeah, and thanks so much for listening. And until we meet and we quilters do get around, happy quilting. For more quilting information and inspiration, please visit us at alexandersonquilts.com.